3: Yes, the Olympics are here. And now as the whole world marvels at the tightly sculpted biceps and, and I don't know, the, the femurs and the strength and the speed of these rare human specimens, let's face it, most of us just don't look like that, and we certainly don't perform like that.
4: I would say the vast majority of us don't perform like that. Even those of us who go to the gym a few times a week, perform nothing like Olympic athletes.
3: Right. These guys are top-notch. They're not average-notch. Uh, there'll be lots of coverage and ogling during the Olympics about why these people are so graced genetically or maybe work so hard for their exceptional muscle tone, their endurance, and on top of that, got a free trip to London. But let's face it, it's easy to praise the extraordinary. They're on the top of the heap. But what about the rest of us? We're heap too. Hold the elevator. Can you hit two, please? the lower heap, but heap nonetheless. Just look in the mirror and you'll see maybe not bulging biceps and rippling calves. How many chins is too many? But you will see the culmination of 200,000 years of evolution. So there must be some excellence involved there. Just by being alive and having your genes prancing around the planet, that means you're a winner. Who am I kidding? I look awesome. Time for a nap.
4: Yes, from beer bellies to aching backs, we're all winners in the Darwinian Olympics. At
3: least here on a special edition of Big Picture Science. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. We'll give you a respite from the international hoopla of the extraordinary, the miraculous, the exceptional, and celebrate Olympics for the rest of us. Let the games begin. (laughs)
5: Sorry, I got totally winded. Can I get a glass of water here?
4: Now, we're not on the savannah anymore, and that's where our bodies became finely tuned. But they're still finely tuned. You may just not appreciate it. To illustrate, let's shift our attention to the body part that's most often neglected during the games, that above the neck. Now, the physical trait that you share with all Olympians is your head. It's not like other animal heads or other hominid heads even, such as that of the Neanderthals. The human head is a remarkable evolutionary achievement.
2: So your face is much smaller than a Neanderthal. Your face is in a different position. You have a chin. A Neanderthal doesn't have a chin. Our brains are different shapes. The way in which we uh, move our heads and stabilize our heads is a little bit different. If you go further down the line to compare us, say, to chimpanzees or other apes or even monkeys, the differences become even more uh, intense and more numerous.
3: Professor of Evolutionary Biology Daniel Lieberman, and we'll hear more from him later, he asks you to consider, for example, what the head has to do so that you can run efficiently. And to illustrate that in other aspects of our anatomical excellence, we've designed a few Olympic events for the especially average among us.
4: Okay, this seems to be the starting line. I think I'm pretty limber. How about you?
3: Well, I don't know if I'm limber, but I'm ready to go. You notice I've got
1: my running shoes on. Game one of the Olympics for the rest of us, mad dash for the phone. Okay, Molly, so this is something we do kind of every day, really. In the this event, is... two participants sprint from the office copy room to a cubicle to grab the phone before it goes to voicemail. <laughs> Look, these things are filled right to the brim there. All while carrying a full cup of coffee. Let's listen.
4: Garrett, it looks like you've put some newspapers down here on the ground?
5: Yeah, I've set up a track for you that leads directly to the phone, and once it starts ringing, it's up to you to get to the phone before it goes to voicemail.
4: Okay, why the newspapers?
5: Well, what we're going to do is measure how much of your coffee you spill as you're running to the phone. So if you keep a a steady gait, less coffee spilled. Well,
4: here we go. We can relate to this. Mine's (laughs) better coffee, though.
5: (laughs)
3: Be careful the corner down
1: there, Mom.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it.
3: Oh, there goes the phone.
1: They've okay. left the coffee room. It's a tight oh. race down the hall. Okay,
6: well, gotta keep well,
3: it you in. can't spill more than a couple. Oh,
1: Whoops, a small splash from
5: Molly's the cup. The
6: oh, no. <laughs>
5: Hello? <laughs> well, Molly, it looks like you spilled more of your coffee than Seth, but you did get to the phone first. <laughs> so based on the rules of the Olympics for the rest of us, you win this event and go
1: on to the next round. It was a grueling match, folks,
3: and it seems that Molly has won with her agility, speed, and upright head. That may be, but even coming in second place, as I did in the Running With Coffee event, is a win, because keeping my balance, avoiding obstacles at all is an extraordinary achievement. And for that, I thank my head.
2: If you think about it, the head is where your sense of balance mostly comes from. So when you're doing something complicated, like, uh, say, a gymnast doing some impressive feat on, say, the parallel bars watch their heads. Their heads actually stay very still while the body's going through all kinds of amazing gyrations and contortions. We're very, very good at keeping our heads still, partly because it's very important for us to keep a stable gaze. Once we lose gaze stability, then the world becomes extremely disorienting. So it's a major uh, challenge for all mammals and humans especially. But One of the reasons that's very important also is that the rate gyro of the head, essentially, the sense of balance actually primarily comes from the head. And so there's lots of information that the head is is measuring constantly about how the body's moving and then using that information to create stability.
3: Now, I know that you study heads, obviously, but you also study feet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part of this, I think, is because you're a runner yourself. But in addition, apparently you got interested in feet when you watched some pigs that you'd put on a treadmill. (laughs) I I guess, well, pigs in general should be on treadmills, right? But you'd put these pigs on a treadmill, and you notice they couldn't run without bobbing their heads up and down, and, and we don't do that.
2: Right. Well, actually, I have to attribute that observation to my colleague Dennis Bramble from the University of Utah, so I was a uh, I was at that time a, a graduate student running some pigs on a treadmill, um, and that's a long and complicated story. But um, but indeed, I had been standing there bored out of my mind for quite a while as this pig was trotting along on the treadmill. And um, and Bramble walks in the room and said, "You know that pig can't keep its head still." And I hadn't really thought about that. But indeed, if you ever get the opportunity to watch a pig on a treadmill, you'll see that its head flops about in a really ungainly, awkward fashion. But if you ever watch a dog or a horse running, you'll notice that the head stays incredibly still. It's like a missile, and the body's more or less moving on the head. And so that got us thinking about human head stabilization. And actually, anybody can observe that themselves. So if you watch, for example, a runner or an athlete at the Olympics uh, who has a ponytail, that ponytail on the head is going to go up and down and side to side as the athlete runs, right? That ponytail is an accelerometer. It's basically measuring the accelerations that are acting on the head, But you'll notice that people's heads actually remain remarkably still despite those wild movements of the ponytail. And so what that's telling you is that there are extraordinary forces acting on the head, and yet we, as a species, have figured out a way to keep our heads very stable uh, despite lacking the mechanisms that most other animals have.
3: Now, one thing I'm told, although you don't really notice it in yourself because you're so used to looking at other humans, is that we have pretty big necks, And I assume that that
2: plays a role in being able to stabilize our heads? Actually, we have pretty short necks. If you look at most animals, they have pretty long necks that stick off the back of the head. So in a sense, the head is cantilevered. It's actually pushed forward from the body, right? Most animals have relatively horizontal necks, and the neck emerges from the back of the head, so that if you ever watch, say, a dog or a cat or a horse run, the neck is able to flex both at where it connects to the trunk but also where it connects to the head, and so that those simple flexion movements those bending uh, you know up and down bending movements enable the animal to keep their heads extremely stable but we have very short vertical necks that attach in the center of our skull up and down. So we're basically like pogo sticks. So we have lost the basic mechanism when we became bipeds. We lost that basic mechanism that's available to pretty much all quadrupeds to keep their necks still. And so we've evolved, we think, a completely novel set of mechanisms to stabilize our heads. And importantly, it's one of the the features that gives us the ability to run really long distances uh, comfortably and and uh, and effectively
3: well is it just our necks I, I i thought that our noses also played a role in this
2: correct yes so most animals have noses like um, well like dogs or cats right there's just a it's kind of like a hole right but we have an extra chamber on the on the front of our nose a sort of vestibule if you will the outer part of our nose and nostrils that point downwards rather than forwards so we've uh, evolved special noses that help us be very active because that extra part of the nose that's the part basically that you know children or rude people pick is essentially a turbulence generator. None of the real serious business of the nose occurs in there, but you have two little valves, those are your nostrils, that are at a right angle to the rest of the nose. So the air has to go through a very small little valve and then turn 90 degrees to get into the rest of the nose where it goes through a second valve. And those valves act a bit like the valve on a garden hose that's called a venturi throat, but it basically causes the, the air that might be laminar flowing in a stream to become very turbulent and flow in vortexes and that means that the air doesn't rush through the nose as fast as it would if it was going in a straight flow, but it causes the air to slow down as it comes into contact with the mucous membranes in the nose and that enables us to humidify Air as it's coming in, sometimes warm it when it's cold. And it also enables us to capture that moisture on the way out so that we don't dehydrate as rapidly.
3: you know, when people envision what we might become in the course of uh, another couple hundred thousand years of evolution or whatever, they they often envision these big-headed, big-brained humans. Does that make sense? I mean, our heads are pretty good. Uh, would a bigger head be better?
2: <laughs> the most common Hollywood ver- vision of a, of an alien, you know, is, a, is the very large-brained uh, creature. But the only way in which uh, natural selection is going to cause larger brains is if a bigger brain were adaptive. And the answer is that uh, that's probably unlikely uh, because um, you'd have to show that individuals who had larger brains um, had... Uh, a selective advantage over people with smaller brains and that's clearly not the case now furthermore simply using your brain differently or eating more food etc doesn't make your brain bigger so right at the moment there doesn't seem to be any selective advantage whatsoever for brains getting bigger in fact brains have gotten smaller over the last few thousand years if you look at uh, at skulls from about 10 or 12000 years ago on average brain size was a little bit larger than it is today And brains have shrank over the last few thousand years because bodies have also gotten smaller. So during the Ice Age, people were larger, and that's because uh, it's a thermoregulatory advantage to be a little bit bigger when it's colder. And as the Earth has warmed up, uh, bodies have gotten actually a little bit smaller, and brains, of course, scale with body size. So as as their bodies got smaller, our brains have become a little bit smaller, too. And there's no evidence whatsoever that that uh, people's brains are getting larger now. So I think you can uh, write off those uh, Hollywood fantasies as, as, well, Hollywood fantasies.
3: Well, it, it's, it's somewhat uh, disconcerting to think that uh, Ice Age literature really should be better than our contemporary literature because they had bigger brains, but that doesn't mean they were smarter.
2: No. There's actually really no relationship between brain size and intelligence within within the species.
3: Well, Dan, we know that a lot of animals on this planet have heads, but what about creatures from another world? Would, would the aliens have heads?
2: Well, heads evolved hundreds and hundreds of millions of years ago because of all those sensory mechanisms that you just mentioned. Almost all the major functions that go on your head tend to be sensory, right? You've got the eyes, the brain, the ears, the sensory system of balance, taste, smell. And that's because these are outgrowths of the end of the neural tube, which formed a brain. And so heads evolved hundreds and hundreds of millions of years ago, we think, because of predators and prey. So uh, if you want to start figuring out how to get dinner, you need to be able to sense that dinner, you need to be able to find that dinner, you need to be able to taste that dinner and decide whether or not you're going to actually eat it. Do you want to be able to spit it out? You then, of course, want to be able to chew it so that you can get more energy from that dinner. And if you want to avoid being dinner, you also want to be able to sense that predator and you want to be able to, um, you know, keep your head stable as you're swimming away, et cetera. So heads evolved in order to help organisms eat each other and also avoid being eaten. Would it have occurred in the same way in other kinds of creatures that have different body plans? I very much doubt it. I mean, our heads are really a byproduct of the way in which the embryo develops with a neural tube and then we have a lot of the specialized sensory bits at the end of the neural tube, I would imagine it's very unlikely that if life is found on other planets that their embryos would function in the same way as, as ours do.
3: Very interesting. Daniel Lieberman, thank you so much for giving us a heads up about the headless aliens. <laughs> My pleasure. Daniel
4: Lieberman goes for runs around Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he's professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University, and he's also the author of The Evolution of the Human Head.
3: Coming up, we non-Olympians are marvels of engineering, even with all our design flaws or quirks of evolution, if you prefer wisdom teeth, the appendix, back pain, anyone? why our bodies work as well as they do on Olympics for the rest of us from Big Picture Science.
4: It's the Olympics for the rest of us, a special edition of Big
3: Picture Science. You know, maybe the most amazing thing about us is that we even can be amazing, given all the design flaws in Homo sapiens.
4: Well, one of the great design flaws is that our air and food travel down the same pipe, until the middle of your throat, that is. Then they split into the esophagus and the trachea. It's not a brilliant engineering scheme, but it seems to work, except in the cases when it doesn't. Remarkable things we do every day, breathe, talk, and eat. And that brings us to...
1: Game two of the Olympics for the rest of us, whistling while eating. In this event, two participants eat a saltine cracker and then whistle the Olympic theme. It's a grueling match, folks. Could get ugly and messy. Let's
4: listen. Okay, Gary and Barb. Hello. Hello. Okay, so you each get a saltine. Now, your job is to eat the saltine, and then the first one to whistle the Olympic theme or really make any sound at all wins.
5: You mean whistling sound? (laughs) Yes. Okay, I think I'm ready.
4: (laughs) Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, set. Okay, eat the saltine.
5: Nope. (laughs) I'm not ready. That was kind of a whistle.
3: Oh, my goodness. Well, I think that that one's pretty clear. Gary came through with a whistle. It wasn't maybe a first-class whistle, but it was a second-class whistle.
4: Can you do the Olympic theme? (laughs) Okay, well done.
3: Thank you.
1: We have a winner in the eating and whistling event. Gary goes on to the final game in the Olympics for the rest of us.
4: Amazing. Okay, it's not a great design, moving air and food through the same pipe. And maybe it shouldn't work, but it does, says anatomist Callum Ross.
6: Well, it's one in the same tube for only a very short stretch right at the back of your mouth. Uh, You bring air in through your nose usually and food in through your mouth. And the problem is that you need to get the air from the tube that goes through your nose into the tube that goes into the lungs and the tube that goes into the lungs is called the trachea, and that's right in front of your neck. And so the, the Adam's apple that you see in, is the trachea. Now the esophagus is the other tube, and that takes food down into the stomach. So the air and the food have to cross, and they cross in the back of your mouth.
3: Now that, that sounds like a kind of a bad design. Is that the reason that if you eat crackers and try to whistle,
6: you can't really do it? Um, I don't know about the crackers and the whistling. <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think the problem is that if you, for example, if you... If you laugh while you are swallowing or try and inhale something while you are swallowing, you put yourself in danger of choking. And one of the things that happens sometimes when people choke is the the food then goes out through their nose. So that's some evidence that the air tube and the food tube cross in the back of the mouth.
3: Well, uh, evolution rewards designs that work and, uh, of course, were the result of, what, 200,000 years of fine-tuning of Homo sapiens, and yet... This doesn't sound like a really very good engineering.
6: Well, I think it's just by chance. It's a developmental... It's just the way that the system develops. And it's inherited from our fishy ancestors, like lungfish, in which the the lungs come off the front of the gut tube, so in front of the esophagus as well. There are some fish, eels in fact, that have lungs that form by pouching out of the top of the, the esophagus or the gut tube. So that in those animals, the air and the food wouldn't have to cross if they had that problem. Whereas we just happen to, by chance, have descended from a group of animals in which the lungs bud off the front of the gut tube rather than the back. And natural selection then makes the best of a bad lot.
3: Well, okay. Well, let's take it another uh, quirky yet worky feature. Uh, We're bipedal. We've spent many thousands of years becoming so, and yet back pain afflicts most of us
6: at some point in our lives. Yes. Why is that? Is that a a design flaw? Yes, natural selection has taken a system, the vertebral column or your spine, a system that is designed to suspend our weight beneath it, like you would see in a dog or in a cat, or a horse for example, and it's taken that system and stood it upright. So now all of the weight, instead of being distributed along the vertebral column, is all going down through the vertebrae at the top of the pelvis. And those backbones at the top of the pelvis, in the lumbar region as it's called, those are the ones that we have the most problem with. So it's just having stood up, gotten off all fours and standing up. Exactly right. So once again, it's this, this question of natural selection works with what it has. And what it had was a system designed to suspend things below it when it was horizontal and then becoming upright Natural Selection can't redesign the whole system. It has to just work with what it has.
3: All right. Well, at the risk of sounding like I'm complaining, I'm going to complain about yet another thing, wisdom teeth, which I used to have. I mean, you know, we we put a lot of energy into growing these things, and everybody does. And then, in many cases, they're just yanked out at some ridiculous price by a dentist with a lot of discomfort. What was the intention of having those wisdom teeth?
6: well we used to need a lot more teeth than we actually have now in fact not everybody has wisdom teeth some people they never develop and so natural selection seems to be gradually getting rid of them but we're in a situation now where most people have them and some people don't and the real problem is that our faces are not big enough for the teeth that we have so our ancestors had faces jaws that were plenty big for all of the teeth that we have including the wisdom teeth and natural selection has been reducing face size and possibly as the result of the evolution of cooking but, in any event, natural selection is reducing face size, and as it does so, the teeth are going to have to be lost one at a time or and or decrease in size. And the wisdom teeth are in the process of doing that. So so they're going away. at some time in the future, people
3: will not develop those wisdom teeth. That's the conventional wisdom as it were? Probably not. And now is it that we were eating more? In uh, in ancestral times, you know, 150,000 years ago, but maybe before we developed the idea of cooking things and sort of improving the nutritional value of what we ate, was that the deal or did we just eat different things?
6: Uh, We ate different things. We ate harder things. We ate tougher things. And before we cooked things, the only way that we could break food down was in our oral cavity and in our stomach. So by chewing on it and then swallowing it into the stomach and using acid to, to digest it. Now, if you're eating tougher and harder things, you need more teeth or thicker enamel so that you don't wear your teeth out as you get older. So when we started cooking our food, we needed to use our teeth to break down the food a lot less, and natural selection started reducing the size of the face and the size of the teeth. I understand that one of your favorite anatomical
3: idiosyncrasies is a little bone that apparently helps keep our eyeballs steady when
6: we are chewing. Exactly. I... uh, I've done a lot of research on this bone behind the eye, it's called the post-orbital septum. That's a thin sheet of bone that is only found in monkeys, apes, and humans, and tarsias, which are some weird little monkey-like things that live in Southeast Asia. And this little bone was was a mystery for a long time. Why did natural selection select for this bone to evolve? My suggestion, and other people I think agree with me, is that it insulates the eyes from movements of the chewing muscles. So if you watch someone chewing, or talking for that matter, you can see the muscles on the side of their head moving, bulging. And that muscle on the side of the head is so close to the eye that if there wasn't this thin sheet of bone there, the eye would bounce around when you chewed, and that would be uh, disconcerting to say the least.
3: We're talking evolution here, Callum. And of course, if you're walking the planet, you're a winner in the Darwinian Olympics, right? So... uh, you can be a winner and still be flawed, apparently.
6: Yes. Natural selection doesn't make you perfect. It just makes you good enough.
3: <laughs> good enough. That's, you know, I have to say that that's what I've been told all my life. But, <laughs> and yet, our bodies do pretty well. I mean, most of us are not able to run and jump like an athlete, but, uh, you know, we do a lot of very well-coordinated things. I mean, you just try and make a robot that can walk and compare that to a human who can walk, and you see how well put together we are for certain things. Yes, so, would you say that the human body is still a kind of a wondrous machine, something to be admired, or do you just sort of say, look, this, this is a bad design, it should have never come out the factory?
6: Well, there's a lot of really great, fascinating and interesting things about the human body. It's, it, and it is very well designed in many ways. But it's a series of compromises. It's a, a mishmash of things that work very well, combined with some things that don't work very well and are clearly just pieces of bad design that we're having to put up with. Well, Callum Ross, thank you so very much for talking with me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, Seth.
4: Callum Ross is Professor of Organismal Biology and Anatomy at the University of Chicago.
3: Athletes in London do seem to be able to begin with badly engineered bodies, the result of bottom-up evolution, and nudge them to the pinnacle of athletic achievement. But as Callum Ross says, despite our design flaws, we ordinary middle-of-the-bell-curve creatures deal with our environment pretty well, although sometimes the environment conspires against us.
4: The average human body doesn't look the way that it did 100 years ago, even 50 years ago on average were heavier, much heavier.
0: Obesity has been quite rare around the world until the past several decades. And undernutrition and people dying of starvation was a much more significant social problem.
4: In the United States, two-thirds of adults and one-third of children are overweight or obese. The condition leads to disease, such as type 2 diabetes, and overall compromises health.
0: So this is the first generation of American children in the nation's history expected to lead shorter lives than their parents did.
3: Kelly Brownell is a psychologist at Yale and an expert on obesity. Named one of Time magazine's most influential people, he's been tracking the obesity epidemic since it began in the early 1980s. Before that, he says, average body weight was pretty stable, but then a rapid increase began that continues today. Now, people have offered many reasons for the obesity epidemic, but Kelly Brownell puts a changing food environment at the top of the list.
0: I'm about 60 years old now, and when I was a boy, the sugared beverages came in bottles that were six and a half or 8 ounces big. Uh, My high school may have had one beverage machine if it had any. People ate three meals a day, there weren't drive-in windows at fast-food restaurants. Portion sizes were uh, much smaller than they are now. And that just begins a list of, how, how, of the factors that show how profoundly the environment has changed. And every one of these factors by itself, large portion sizes, more frequent eating times, higher accessibility to unhealthy foods, drive up food consumption if you add them all together, it's a massive onslaught against human biology.
4: So it sounds like a couple things are happening. One is the actual content of the food, and the other is the the access to the food. So back on the days when we were on the savanna, if we're talking about human biology and what we were adapted for, you probably wouldn't come across a whole pile of deer meat or saber-toothed tiger meat or whatever it might be, and then you could just gorge yourself for the rest of the week. You had to hunt it down, and it was scarce or maybe at times plentiful, but it wasn't just, you know, abundant 24 hours a day.
0: Accessibility to unhealthy food has gone through the roof. In humans living in, in earlier times in history would have periods of food scarcity and times when food might be abundant, for example, there would be a kill or a harvest. And the humans that survived those conditions were the ones that would eat as much as they could when food was available, store the excess calories as body fat. Those people would survive the next famine, contribute to the gene pool. And what you came away with after many, many generations of this were humans finely tuned to to eat a diet that is high in variety, high in calories, and high in survival value. And if we still lived in conditions where food was scarce much of the time, that would be adaptive. Unfortunately, humans have never had to develop mechanisms to protect against overconsumption of food. And presumably, maybe with you know tens of thousands of more years and more generations, these mechanisms will come in and will adapt to the current food environment. But our biology hasn't caught up with a rapidly changing food environment. And now that food is available everywhere and all the time, it fools our brains and fools the rest of our bodies homeostatic mechanisms or regulatory mechanisms that would keep us in balance with nature. And then you've got big problems. And then you add to that the ways these foods are processed, then you've got complete chaos.
4: Now, I wonder if you could give me an example of the kind of food and maybe the portion size that we might have eaten back when the environment and our biology were in balance.
0: In uh, very early days of human history, the diet consisted of whatever people could find or hunt down and then later what they could grow and cultivate on their own. That diet was profoundly different than what exists today in the diet. There uh, was much more fiber and whole grains in that diet. Um, Of course, there was no such thing as artificial ingredients at the time. Uh, There would have been greater intake of fruits and vegetables than people are consuming now. And the meat consumption would have been different. People would have been eating meat that wasn't bred to have a very high level of fat in it. And this profoundly different diet that people consumed back then was in harmony with human biology. The problem with the food supply now is not only is there more of it, but it's processed in ways that fool the body. This is what scientists call ultra-processing of food or hyper-processing of food. And here's an example, if you take the coca leaf in nature, it's mildly reinforcing, it's something that uh, humans won't overdo and consume, but when you process it and you create cocaine, you have a highly addictive substance. When you further process it and you get crack cocaine, then you have something that is even more extremely addictive. So how different is that from taking corn that people might not overeat in nature and you turn it into Cheetos? How different is that than taking wheat and turning it into a Twinkie? How different is that from taking water and turning it into Coca-Cola? And the hyper-processing of foods is done in ways that the body probably just can't recognize and exist in harmony with the environment. It's one of the reasons why we may have rampant obesity.
4: You're also drawing a parallel between the foods that are heavily processed today and drug addiction. And I wonder if you see it as a kind of addiction that our body, our biology, um, has become addicted to certain
0: foods. There is a growing body of evidence linking consumption of certain foods, particularly those high in sugar, with an addictive process. There are lab studies with animals and there are human brain imaging studies that show that sugar in particular acts on the brain very much like traditional substances of abuse. Now that doesn't mean that the addictive impact might be as strong as something like heroin or morphine or nicotine, but the addictive process seems to exist anyway. And once this science becomes robust enough, which and I believe it is now, it could change the entire discourse about obesity, because then you have to start asking the companies when they knew these products were acting on the brain like they do, do they intentionally manipulate these, especially in products that they pitch to children, What about selling these products in schools? What about marketing them to children? It really could change things a lot as the science continues to come out, which seems to happen almost by the day now.
4: You know, it's amazing when I see photographs of what a a portion size ought to be. If you're going to have french fries, maybe it's 10 or eight french fries and a piece of chicken that's about the size of a, I don't know, a business card or something.
0: Yeah, eight or 10 french fries is what people might eat in their first bite. (laughs) <laughs> much less have as a whole portion. So not, not only are are the portion sizes way too large, for given what people need, but there's this f- interesting phenomenon called unit bias where people tend to consume whatever they find in a container, be it a bag, a box, or a bottle. And as the sizes of these things have morphed continually larger, people are over-consuming because they tend to consume whatever is there, and it has no relationship to what they actually need.
4: In the HBO documentary on the subject of obesity called The Weight of the Nation, you uh, appeared in that. And I believe there was a clerk who was eating broccoli, and a child came into the store and did not recognize, this young boy did not recognize the food that he was eating, and he had to ask what it was. What do, you, what do you make of that scene?
0: There are some striking stories like that of children basically eating out of containers all of their life. Um, my own university, Yale, has a sustainable food program that's very innovative and wonderful. And one of the nice things they do is invite children from inner city New Haven to come to the farm and learn about some of these foods. And some things as simple as carrots, children may not have ever seen or don't recognize that they grow on, in the ground. And the folks that run that program told me one day that they had a child who came who had never used a fork, had always eaten things from containers, from fast food restaurants and local bodegas and the like. So these are very sad pictures, and they've shown how distant people have grown from where their food comes from, and that's a a distance that needs to be narrowed.
4: Well, as as you mentioned, when we were gathering food ourselves and not just walking into a convenience store, we were also burning a lot of calories <laughs> at the time. Um, that's just one way in which physical activity has changed. Now, most people are glued to their desk. Children don't play outside as much. I mean, when I was growing up, you were basically <laughs> set outside as, as soon as it was warm on a weekend or during the summer, and you played outside all day long. What what happens to our bodies when they don't move, and they evolve to be quite physically active?
0: As many changes as there have been in the food environment, there have been equal number of changes in the physical activity picture. Physical education has been subtracted out of schools. Just look at the energy-saving devices that we have in our daily lives. When I grew up and you wanted to lower the window in your automobile, you had to turn a crank to do it. Boy, is that a thing of the past. There are electric toothbrushes, electric garage door openers, washing machines. One thing after another like this conspires to save energy, which would be good if we were starving. But since we're not, we're not burning a lot of calories that humans used to do. One used to get paid to be physically active. It was called a job. And now most jobs are sedentary, and you've got to go pay somebody to join a health club to be physically active. So the picture has changed around totally and a cascade of health problems come from this, and obesity is one of them.
4: Well, and finally, everything you said will give us a lot to think about as we watch these Olympians take the stage to do feats of human endurance and strength that are becoming increasingly rare so that we don't despair too much. I wonder... Is there anything hopeful that we can be thinking about as we look at these extraordinary physical specimens?
0: I'm very hopeful because countries around the world are beginning to take the obesity problem quite seriously. People are questioning the marketing practices of the food industry, and there are places around the world considering things as radical as taxes on some of the food. These are all signs of changing times, and as that changes, cultural norms about food will change, so we can focus more on its quality, its impact on the environment, and less on just trying to get as much as we can for every penny we spend.
4: Kelly Brownell, thank you so much for speaking with us.
0: Thank you for having me.
3: Kelly Brownell is a recognized expert in the study of obesity, a psychologist and epidemiologist, and director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University.
4: Coming up, how an average teenager became a superhero, why Spider-Man is one of us,
3: plus the final event in Olympics for the rest of us, a special edition of While all eyes are on the London Games, we hope all ears are attuned to this special edition of Big Picture Science. A respite from the network coverage of the marvelous and the extraordinary, it's Olympics for the rest of us. And that brings us to the final round of Middle of the Bell
4: Curve competition.
3: Game three and the last
1: game of the Olympics for the rest of us. Grocery bag grab from car. In this event, our two winners from the previous events, Molly and Gary, vie for the gold by trying to lift all 14 grocery bags from the trunks of their car and carry them to the door in just one trip. (laughs) This I want to see because it's just not possible, folks.
3: Let's listen. Okay, we're here for the third Olympic event for the rest of us. Gary, Molly, you guys ready to go? Indeed oh yeah i'm ready all right now what we have in here are 28 bags full of groceries in the trunk of barbara's car and barbara's going to open that up and when she does the two of you grab all 14 bags that are assigned to you and take them to that door over there as quickly as you can without dropping anything got it
4: okay got it
3: got it all right barbara you're set to go i'm ready do it
1: the trunk has popped open all right there's a mad grab for bags (laughs) Bags are slipping from Gary's hand. Oh, my
4: goodness.
1: Molly is laughing too hard to perform effectively.
4: Do I have to use the handles?
1: Neither competitor can seem to grasp the handles. Okay. In a wild upset, Molly is ignoring the handles and grabbing bags willy-nilly.
5: Why does Molly get all pillows and sweaters and I get
1: watermelons and bowling balls? And it's a neck-and-neck neck run to the door.
4: You said to the door, not
3: Well, i got to say, neither one of the contestants dropped anything. Molly got to the door first, so that makes her the winner. Molly, how do you feel about that?
4: I feel great. My arms are shaking a little bit. I stopped grabbing the handles of the bags and just scooped up the bags as many as I could and started to run.
3: Well, it was certainly an impressive performance, and I'm sure they'll play the national anthem.
4: So I get the gold, right?
3: You do get the gold, except that we don't have gold. But we do have, I think it's either yttrium or a candy bar.
4: Of a candy bar. (laughs)
3: Well, Gary, you didn't quite make it second place, though. What uh, was the problem with your performance as you see it? Yeah, what,
4: what was the problem, Gary?
5: <laughs> well, I, I, the first few bags I grabbed just seemed to slip right out of my hands, and I just kept grabbing at bags, and it took me twice as long as Molly just to grab all the bags.
3: Do you see yourself doing better next time?
5: Oh, definitely. I've got some, uh, some new skills in place thanks to this event.
3: All right. We'll be seeing you four years from now.
5: Yes, definitely.
4: Or, or next weekend when we have to go get more groceries.
1: It was a tight race, folks. There may be a minor tear in Gary's rotator cuff and a sprained wrist for Molly, but it seems Molly has won the Grocery Carry event with her coordination, strength, and... well, I really have no idea what to attribute it to. But Molly wins the gold in the Olympics for the rest of us games. Congratulations to her and to all of the Middle of the Bell Curve athletes who participated today and who participate in such events every day. And that concludes the Olympics for the Rest of Us Games.
7: Tell us a little bit about yourself, Mr. Parker. Not much to tell, really.
4: Peter lives with
7: his aunt and uncle. Did you catch that spider guy yet?
1: No, but we will. This guy wears a mask like an outlaw. I think he's trying to do something maybe the police can't. Can't? (laughs)
4: The film The Amazing Spider-Man is now playing in theaters, and one thing that strikes us about Spider-Man is his averageness. According to media and communication professor Robert Peasley, Spider-Man's alter ego, Peter Parker, is a perfect hero for the Olympic Games. He has extraordinary abilities, yes, but deep down, he's just like us, quite ordinary.
7: You know, he's a, he's a teenager, he's got problems, he needs to get a job and keep a girlfriend and, and pay bills and, you know, live up to his Aunt May's expectations. And, oh, by the way, he's also got, you know, these superpowers and needs to save the world. And I think Peter Parker comes first for that character, and uh, Spider-Man is sort of the, the thing he has to do, whereas with a lot of the other superheroes, the, the superheroic character comes first and the alter ego is sort of their cover.
3: One of the things that certainly appealed to me about the film was, indeed... The interactions of Spider-Man when he wasn't doing his arachnid thing, when he was just interacting like any high school kid would mm-hmm. with the, you know, with with his peers. There, what are the super abilities that
7: Spider-Man has here? Well, he's uh, he from his spider bite, his super spider bite, he gets sort of superhuman strength, agility. He's got the ability to climb walls without the use of any additional tools, etc. And then, of course, he's already a very smart kid. So it's that intelligence that he uses to build the web-slinging devices that he uses in the film, which is a modification from the first uh, Sam Raimi trilogy, wherein Parker's spider bite actually gave him biological web spinners. But the other thing that comes with the spider bite is the so-called spidey sense. And that's the supernatural heads-up that Peter Parker has when something's about to go down. He has about a two- to three-second head start in terms of reacting to it.
3: Yes, I, I don't know that spiders can do that, but that, that is... <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, the thing about Spider-Man is not so much his spider-like
7: abilities, it's the fact that this guy is one heck of an athlete. Indeed, and that's enhanced by his the fact that he's bit by this spider. But unlike, again, the Raimi films where Tobey Maguire it seems to get bigger in terms of his physique and so on after the spider bite. Andrew Garfield in this case looks more or less the same and so the liveness and the agility and so on seem to be something that isn't as a result of this new persona, etc. But Spider-Man, if you think about him in comparison to some of the other big superheroes, both in film and and in comic books, if you look at uh, Superman and his interstellar origins, his non-human stature. I mean, he's a superhuman trying to fit in 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 human culture. So he's the fact that he's stronger and can fly and all these things sort of take him outside of the realm of the human. Batman, many of his abilities are as a result of either Bruce Wayne's extravagant wealth or his sort of monstrosity as a man seeking vengeance and the drive that kind of comes with that.
3: It seems to me that you could make the case that uh, Olympic athletes are the closest that we come in real life to these sorts of superheroes.
7: Well, you know, if you look at the way NBC, as as our main packager of the Olympics here in the United States, if you look at the way that they construct narratives around the olympics whether it's summer or winter olympics certainly they're playing on that association for us there's language and imagery that's consistently evocative of something beyond the human of something of effort and of of ability that the average person just can't approach at least not without you know some of the buzzwords of dedication and hard work
3: but spider-man is appealing largely because he's just the kid next door, or at least in a lot of the film, he's just the kid next door, and yet, you know, he's able to transcend that. He's he's able to do what I think most teenage boys have dreamt about doing at some point, really impress the girls by, you know, flying through the canyons of New York as if he were just on a skateboard, and he does have a skateboard. I mean, there's something enduring in
7: all this, isn't there? I mean, this is a timeless tale. Sure, and, and again, the flip side of a lot of the Olympics coverage when you see the broadcasters focusing on individual athletes, it's not just what they do in their events, but it's also their status as often small-town American folk that often come from humble beginnings, that have worked their way up. I mean, it's sort of the American dream made manifest in a lot of cases. And certainly Peter Parker has a story that fits in, I think, with that narrative. But the interesting thing about him is is that he's discomfited in that role of superhero. It's not the realization of a fantasy or a dream. It's actually kind of a bummer for him a lot of the time.
3: He was an unwitting superhero. I mean, this was completely accidental. He gets a bug bite. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, But that's, that's not the way... I mean, Superman at least was born into superness, right?
7: Yes, and, of course, Batman chooses it. And the legend of Spider-Man is that he's called through this spider bite and at first refuses the call, which consistently results in the death of Uncle Ben. And so it's in that moment that the ethos, if you like, of Spider-Man that with great power comes great responsibility, which is one of the most quoted lines in all of comic books, the impact, I guess, of that moment is felt throughout the Spider-Man narrative universe.:
3: I kind of wonder why superhero stories, uh, why the mythology of superheroes appeal to us because you know in in Europe, superheroes didn't seem to be that common. This seems to be a, really an American genre.
7: Well, I think that there's a great deal of precedent and many authors have pointed out the variety of precedents there are in literature and, and, you know, the archetype of the the savior is one that I think has a lot of resonance here in, in the United States. I mean, we could argue that our first modern superheroic character is Christ himself. He's selfless. He has these supernatural powers of various kinds. He's someone that is an outcast of one form or another. So all of these kind of tropes, if you like, of that character, I think you could read into almost any other superhero character or even superhero-esque characters like Neo from The Matrix or Harry Potter, Luke Skywalker. There's a whole batch of them out there.
3: Yeah, it's almost a Horatio Alger story, right? I mean, just the mm-hmm. ordinary guy who does extraordinary things.
7: The hero's calling, The you know, the, the ordinary person who is called to do something extraordinary must sacrifice something of great value to them in the process and either sacrifices themselves entirely for the good of the whole or is made stronger, has sort of a coming of age experience as a result of their journey.
3: Well, finally, Rob, if we were to send uh, Spidey to the London Olympics, (laughs) which event do you think he should enter?
7: Uh, I would say uh, he'd do pretty well in gymnastics could see him excelling in the floor exercise. Uh, uneven bars would probably be a pretty good event for him. Pole vaulting, perhaps, if we get him out in the track and field. Anything where he can use that spider strength and agility, and, and maybe if he can get it by the judges, he could use the webs a little bit, too.
3: Yeah, I, I think he would get the gold. I, I,
7: I, I think, <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think he'd be
3: disqualified, in fact. <laughs> Rob Peasley, thank you so very much for talking with us today.
7: Thanks for having me.
4: Everyman Robert Peasley is an assistant professor at the College of Media and Communications at Texas Tech University and author of Web Spinning Heroics, critical essays on the history and meaning of Spider-Man. Okay, well, it would be fun to watch Spidey as a gymnast.
3: Yeah, I suppose it would be. I mean, it would be spectacular. Of course, I think it would be disheartening for the other competitors.
4: But, as we've heard, there's no shame in being a middle-of-the-road human, physically at least.
3: Well, Molly, you know... We humans like to berate ourselves as being somehow, I don't know, inferior because, you know, hawks have better eyesight and and cheetahs can run faster and I suppose bears are stronger than we are. But in fact, our eyesight's better than most animals. We can run faster than most animals. We're certainly smarter than most animals. We live longer than most animals. You know, just as animals, we're pretty good.
4: Pretty good is the new excellence in
3: the Darwinian Olympics. Yeah, pretty good is, from my point of view, good enough.
4: Thanks to our above-average production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler.
3: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have
4: been attuned to Olympics for the Rest of Us, a special edition of Big Picture Science to coincide with the London Games. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link... On our website, and while you're online, why not go to Facebook and our page, Big Picture Science, and become a fan of the program. You can leave your comments there as well.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because you get some exercise turning the knob, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.
5: Ow, my hands are totally cramped up. Can I get some ibuprofen over here?
3: Sure. Here you go, Gary. Thanks. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast.